You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Corbett Report Podcast. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I am coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan this Tuesday, August 12th, 2014. And you will excuse the fact that this episode of the podcast is coming a day later than it should otherwise be, but I got lost in the research for this episode, and it has blown up to monstrous proportions. So we have a metric feces ton of information to get through today, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to getting into it. So thank you for your patience as this episode was being prepared, and I hope you are strapped into your seat, because today we are going to be talking about the Ebola panic that is currently sweeping the globe, or at the very least being pimped out by the mainstream media, and I think there is an awful lot to peel back here about what's really going on, so I guarantee you, no matter how closely you've been following this story, there is going to be information presented in today's podcast that you will not have heard before, so please... Buckle down and get ready and get the rewind button uh, and the pause button ready because there's going to be just a fast and furious amount of information in this episode. And this episode is brought to you by, of course, you out there, of course, the Corporate Report members who do subscribe to the website and donate on a monthly or annual basis who make the website possible in the monetary sense, but now also, of course, help to make these types of podcasts possible through the furthering of our open source investigation at CorbettReport.com. Of course, members of CorbettReport.com can sign into Corbett Report right now to contribute to our various open source investigations. And there is an open source investigation going on into the Ebola panic right now. They're on CorbettReport.com. I'll put the link in the show notes as well as the link to all of the things we talk about today. It's going to be an impressive show notes for this episode. And uh, that's all, of course, available at CorbettReport.com. So I want to thank all of the people who have contributed to that comment thread right now on the website. Algorithm of Consciousness, Truth Seeker Always, Joan Redmond, JM, Green Crow, all of you out there, um, and, and the many, many more I haven't cited, including uh, Brock West of AP Perspective, who makes an appearance in the comic thread. Thank you guys again. Your input and your feedback has been valuable, and we are going to address some of it very specifically in this podcast episode. Once again, you can get involved in this conversation and contribute to the spreading of this information through that those types of comment threads. Once again, you can sign up for a Corporate Report membership there on the website. So let's get into this episode. It is episode 200, uh, 293 of the Corporate Report podcast. It is entitled The Ebola Effect hyping the next bioweapon for fear and profit. And it is going to be, as I say, a data dump of information. So let's get ready. And the first thing to say, the first thing I want to stress about all of this is, of course, don't panic. Uh, the panic button has definitely been hit multiple times by the MSM and the governments of the world and the WHO and the other organizations that are ramping up the fear right now, demonstrably so so that this is now covering and dominating a lot of the coverage of, um, of the CNN and uh, outlets like that. And as always, if the MSM wants you to panic about something and wants you to go into a tizzy, it's probably best to go the other way. And I would say that for anyone who is in a country in which uh, the, the Ebola virus has yet to transmit from person to person, i.e. anywhere outside of West Africa when we're talking about this 2014 outbreak specifically, 
please don't panic at this point. Uh, I'm not saying that it's not possible for this uh, virus to become truly pandemic, but at this point it is not. And honestly, it is a greater detriment to your health to worry about health crises like these that you have not been exposed to yet and do not have a possible exposure vector at this point than it is to uh, actually be worried and prepared and hunkering down and uh, getting your your uh, uh, your supplies ready to for the zombie apocalypse, which is probably not going to come. So again, I can't definitively say how this pandemic is going to play out from here, but I can say that the panic at this stage is absolutely unwarranted. Again, for anyone who's outside of the affected areas, at the very least, and even in the affected areas, I think people should be more concerned about some of the other developments that are taking place that we'll get into. On the other side, the flip side of this injunction, don't panic. There are the people out there who say, well, yeah, of course. I mean, there's nothing to worry about here because uh, this is all just hype by the MSM. So I think it's just a distraction issue. There are people in the comment thread of the Ebola panic uh, article on CorbettReport.com that are voicing this concern. This is just a distraction issue. It's not worth our time. I wouldn't go that far. I don't think it's a distractionary issue. In fact, I think that this is ultimately, regardless of whether or not this particular pandemic um, actually eventuates into anything that we truly do need to worry about, regardless of that, I think it at the very least is preparatory. It is part of the consciousness seeding that is going on right now as part of a decades-long preparation of the public for a pandemic virus, and I think it is important for us to keep track of that narrative that they're putting out there so that we can understand it and better disarm it, because it is a weapon that is being used to colonize our minds right now, and if we simply ignore that weapon, then it will be more powerful, powerfully uh, effective against us when it is eventually deployed for real. So, having said all of that as preparation, let's get into some of the specifics. What are we going to cover in this presentation? We're going to review the official story of this outbreak, um, because it is always good to know the official story so we know what it, what it is that we're uh, refuting and what it is that we're working against. We're going to examine the implications of this outbreak for the implementation or the possible future implementation of medical martial law. We're going to talk about the bio-warfare connections to this and the depopulation endgame agenda that is uh, behind the ultimate, I think, long-term narrative of these types of pandemics. And then finally, we're going to scrutinize some of the alt-media, uh, well, um, uh, claims that are being made right now that I think are unwarranted, because just because the MSM is wrong about everything does not mean that the alt-media is right about everything. So let's start, as we usually do, by just taking a look at the, the official story, what we're expected to believe about this, and we'll start with the official story about the Ebola virus itself from the WHO, Ebola virus is cause, uh, causes Ebola hemorrhagic fever in human beings. Uh, it is likely hosted by fruit bats. Again, the WHO speculates that the natural reservoir for the Ebola virus is fruit bats and that uh, it has transferred into the human population, but they don't know. Um, so there you go. Take that speculation for what it's worth. Uh, this virus first appeared in 1976 in a village near the Ebola River in present-day Congo, back in when it was Zaire. And uh, also in 1976, there was another outbreak in Sudan, and they were separate um, outbreaks. Uh, it was originally believed to be a new strain of the Marburg virus, which is another viral hemorrhagic fever, 
that operates in a similar way. So the, uh, even, even at the time, there was some confusion over that. And again, coming from the WHO, quote, infection occurs from direct contact through broken skin or mucous membranes with the blood or other bodily fluids or secretions, stool, urine, saliva, semen of infected people, end quote. And of course, that is contentious. Again, we are just outlining the official story from the WHO, the CDC, you know, the, 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 the sort of mainstream progenitors of this. But even among that crowd, this is somewhat contentious. Certainly, there have been clinical trials that have at least suggested the possibility that Ebola is transmissible um, through the air. It is air transmissible. And it, that is still listed as a potential vector, or at least uh, something that people should be concerned about by, for example, the Canadian public health authorities and others. Um, so the idea that this is only a, a virus that can only be transmitted through direct contact with, with mucous membranes or with, uh, with in contaminated products is not uh, is not something that is certainly settled science by any means. And uh, this, in fact, is one of the reasons why Ebola has been studied, as we will see, for a long time in biowarfare uh, research as a potential biowarfare agent because uh, it has been understood that it can at least be made airborne transmissible and thus a potentially effective bio-weapon. Uh, so, uh, moving along with the official story, again, the symptoms of uh, Ebola hemorrhagic fever um, start out as sudden onset of fever, intense weakness, muscle pain, headache, and sore throat, aka the regular flu, and later stages of the disease see vomiting, diarrhea, rash, impaired kidney and liver function, and internal-slash-external bleeding. It's important to note that for those of you watching the video presentation of this podcast, there is a picture on the screen of a, a very famous picture of a man suffering from Ebola hemorrhagic fever bleeding out from the mouth. These, this is one of the less graphic uh, versions of these types of pictures, which are widely available online and widely used to illustrate stories about Ebola and the types of uh, official CDC and WHO postings, because, of course, it is an extremely effective image, but as... People who are doubting this, uh, the Ebola panic and hype, like John Rappaport point out, this is certainly not the, uh, the, the necessary or even necessarily the typical um, presentation of this disease. So it's a psyop in and of itself to present and to, um, to dwell on these types of images rather than on a lot of patients who do not exhibit this type of uh, disgusting, painful, bleeding uh, uh, type of presentation of the disease at all. Again, moving on with the official story, again, officially coming from the WHO, there is no licensed or authorized treatment or vaccine for Ebola virus. It is limited at this point to um, to basically uh, care uh, for people who are exhibiting symptoms, as in ameliorating their symptoms and trying to help their body fight it off naturally. There was a serum that was derived from uh, patients who had survived the 1995 Congo outbreak of Ebola that was tested on eight patients during that outbreak, and seven of them survived, which at the time was posited as a potential sign that the serum was effective i.e. you could derive a serum from the blood of people who had survived the virus that would help others in, uh, in combating the virus. 
although there, that has been much disputed, and there are other studies that have come out since saying, no, the, the common factor among those who survived was their age. It had nothing to do with the serum. So uh, that's a very highly contested study, but that's part of the official story as well. Now, there's a couple of products that are now being experimentally tested, as I'm sure you've heard about in recent, uh, in recent days and weeks, and as we will get into more in, later in this presentation. One of them is an RNA interference drug developed by Tecmira Pharmaceuticals under a $140 million DOD contract, the Department of Defense, the U.S. government, of course. And the other is MAP Biopharmaceuticals uh, with a product called ZMAP, a so-called plantibody um, produced in genetically engineered tobacco plants. Uh, again, we'll get more into that, but basically, the long story short, the, uh, the virus is engineered into the tobacco plants that then uh, develop antibodies which are harvested from the plants and used as part of this uh, concoction, this antiviral cocktail. All right, so that is the official story on treatment and, uh, and the other basic guidelines of what this disease is. Let's look at the timeline of the outbreak of this current this current outbreak in 2014. It actually supposedly started in December of 2013. Patient zero has been identified as a two year two year old girl in southeastern Guinea, who uh, died of the disease in on December 6th of 2013, and transferred uh, it to her mother and grandmother, and then their other family members started to get ill. The first case uh, that were identified and reported as Ebola um, uh, surfaced in Guinea in February. And it wasn't until March 22nd that uh, Les Médecins Sans Frontières, the Doctors Without Borders, put out a special uh, notice that 24 of their personnel were in Guinea dealing with an Ebola outbreak, um, including doctors, nurses, logisticians, and uh, hygiene and sanitation experts, and that there were um, 33 tons of medical supplies and more staff on the way. Uh, that was, again, March 22nd, but interestingly enough, the earliest uh, actual official announcement that I can find from the Ministry of Health of Guinea was from March 24th, so two days after Doctors Without Borders um, started to, to raise the alarm. The Guinea Ministry of Health came out and confirmed an Ebola outbreak 50, uh, with 86 suspected cases and 59 deaths. And then on March 31st, one week later, the first confirmed case appeared in Liberia, and at that time the death toll stood at 78. Skip ahead uh, to April. Early April, West Africa begins mobilizing to fight the spread of the disease. Their details on this are rather shaky, but it obviously involves uh, uh, more close close measurements and and uh, and and cracking down on border crossings and things of that sort. Uh, by the end of May, there was the first confirmed cases in uh, Sierra Leone, and the death toll had reached 187 by that point. Uh, on June 16th, the WHO released a report that confirmed 333 deaths, 333 deaths, making it, uh, by that point, the deadliest outbreak ever. The previous most deadly outbreak was, in fact, the first ever outbreak in Zaire, in the Congo, in 1976, in which 280 people died. Out of 318 reported cases, a staggering 88% fatality rate, um, which, again, is gives you a sense of just how deadly this virus can be at certain times. But it's also important to note, as some people, again, in the comment thread on our open source investigation on CorbettReport.com do note, 
that the more deadly a virus is, the less likely it is to go pandemic because or epidemic because it is difficult for it to transfer from host to host if the hosts keep dying off um, very quickly. So an 88% fatality rate virus is, of course, very worrying for those who do contract that virus, but it is much less likely to go pandemic or, or uh, global um, if people are dying in those types of numbers. So there is a, uh, a, a certain fatality percentage tipping point, I guess, at which point uh, the, the likelihood of pandemic actually goes down. Something to keep in mind. The current uh, fatality rate in the current 2014 outbreak has been estimated at something like 64%. And again, that those numbers keep changing um, on a regular basis. So we'll keep up to date with that, I suppose. But uh, that, again, is what uh, is being reported. Skip ahead to July 3rd, and the WHO convenes a ministerial meeting in Ghana uh, to decide on cross-border collaboration. And that uh, meeting is uh, interesting. Of course, it, uh, it talks about the need for the WHO to establish a sub-regional control center in Guinea to act as a coordinating platform to consolidate technical support to West African countries by all major partners and assist in resource mobilization. So, uh, again, just more a lot of uh, gobbledygook to, to summarize the point that, yes, the WHO basically handed itself a lot of powers uh, to help um, combat this crisis. And uh, they talk in some more details that, um, again, is will be linked up in the show notes about what that actually involves. By July 25th, we have the uh, first probable case in Nigeria, and July 30th, uh, Germany agrees to accept two Ebola-infected patients at the request of the WHO. Um, a pretty unusual step. Uh, there are not many countries clambering to accept Ebola-infected patients for treatment uh, at any previous time, in any previous outbreak. Uh, this has not happened before, so it is interesting in that it is precedent-setting, although at least in the German uh, case, going to a university hospital in Hamburg, they use a very stringent uh, BSL-4-type um, uh, airlocks and, and other procedures to make sure that it is a very tightly controlled environment. However, in August uh, of 2014, just earlier this month, of course, we had Dr. Kent Brantley and Nancy Wrightball uh, two American aid workers in Liberia transferred to Emory University Hospital in, in Atlanta for treatment of their own. And uh, again, I'll, I'll let you take a look at the uh, the open source investigation we're doing on CorbettReport.com. But if you actually compare, for example, the steps at the uh, Hamburg University Hospital versus this Emory University Hospital and uh, what uh, state uh, state they're in there in terms of quarantining or keeping uh, these uh, subjects uh, uh, sealed off from the outside public. It seems like there's nothing more than a glass partition keeping them from uh, the, the general public, which uh, is very interesting because uh, previous protocols established by U.S. AMRID and uh, published in the U.S. AMRID documents from 2002 show that there was the requirement of BSL-4 biosafety laboratory level 4 uh, safety requirements uh, at every stage of treating and handling an Ebola-infected patient. And yet now the CDC claims to operate this Emory University Hospital special isolation ward where uh, there isn't even, as far as I'm aware, the proper airlocks and procedures in place that would be required of a BSL-4 type uh, environment. So... 
again, there are some precedent-setting things happening here. I don't think it necessarily means that this is something to worry about, even if you are in Atlanta, but I think it it is important for the precedent it's setting. Also, of course, just last week, uh, there was a Spanish missionary flown from Liberia for treatment in Spain, so this is becoming something, again, as I say, of a precedent that already seems to have been accepted um, into standard practice. On August 11th, Uh, The latest update from the WHO at the time of recording of this podcast, uh, the WHO reported 1,848 cases total in Liberia, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, and Guinea, with 1,013 reported deaths. So again, somewhere around that 60% fatality rate as of current recording. Um, Okay, so that's kind of the official story. The question is, so what? Obviously, the government, the WHO, the establishment media, they're all pimping this Ebola virus fear porn. They want you to be afraid of this, so um, why should we care? Um, why why do they want us to be afraid? Does this matter? Is this just a distraction? Well, a few points to be made here. First of all, the fear that they are uh, pumping out right now is used as an excuse either for the implementation of medical martial law or, at the very least, for the softening of the public when it comes to issues of medical martial law, more on which in a moment. The fear is used to sell the public on the necessity or efficacy of expensive new treatments, more on which in a moment, and the fear is used to prepare the public for accepting a worldwide pandemic that wipes out large numbers of people, more on which in a moment. Let's talk about medical martial law. What is medical martial law? Well, I'm sure you're probably familiar by now with the concept of martial law. That is the uh, rule by fiat decree of military or police authorities, um, the suspension of civil rights, etc., in a time of declared emergency. Um, And this medical martial law, exactly as the name implies, is martial law done for the purpose of a medical emergency. Obviously, for delivering medical aid, because the authorities care so much about you, they must suspend your uh, your inalienable human rights that are uh, not granted by any governments, but they can be revoked apparently in times of emergency, or that's what the authorities, so-called self-described, would want you to believe. Um, something for political uh, philosophers to ponder at, at any rate, and for people who actually have to live through the uh, prospect of medical martial law, something that uh, they have to do more than just ponder. For more on this issue of medical martial law, you can take a look at our full, complete uh, podcast-length exploration of that subject back in episode 86 of the Corbett Report podcast, which, again, will be linked in the show notes for this presentation so that you can go and familiarize yourself with more about this idea of medical martial law. But I guess the question is, well, is this something that's just coming uh, into view now? Is it something that they're just trying to uh, to seed into the public consciousness now? Of course not. This has been a very long, uh, very careful preparation of the public for the concept that we may just have to suspend all your rights and rule over you with the military in the event of a medical emergency. And just for one example, one data point on the uh, the chart that paints the picture of that, we can go back to October 4th, 2005, at a presidential White House press conference in which a very scripted question is asked of George Bush about the then-developing concern over avian influenza. Mr. President, you've been thinking a lot about pandemic flu and the risks in the United States if that should occur I was wondering, Secretary Levitt has said that first uh, responders in the states and local governments are not prepared for something like that. To what extent are you concerned about that after Katrina and Rita, and is that one of the reasons you're interested in the idea of using defense 
assets to respond to something as broad and long-lasting as a flu might be? Yes. Thank you for the question. I am concerned about avian flu. I'm concerned about what an avian flu outbreak can mean for the United States and the world. I, am, uh, I have thought through um, the scenarios of what an avian flu outbreak could mean. I tried to get a better handle on what the decision-making process would be by reading Mr. Berry's book on the influenza outbreak in 1918. I would recommend it. Uh, the policy decisions for uh, a president in dealing with an avian flu outbreak are, are difficult. Uh, one example, if we had an outbreak somewhere in the United States, do we not then quarantine that part of the country? And how do you then enforce a quarantine? One, is one thing to shut down airplanes. It's another thing to prevent people from coming in to get exposed to the avian flu. And who best to be able to affect a quarantine? One option is the use of uh, a military that's able to plan and move. And so that's why I put it on the table. I think it's an important debate for Congress to have. I noticed the other day some, evidently some governors didn't like it. I understand that. I was the commander-in-chief of the National Guard, and proudly so. And frankly, I didn't want the president telling me to how, to how to be the commander-in-chief of the Texas Guard. But Congress needs to take a look at circumstances that may uh, need to vest the capacity of the president to move beyond that debate. Uh, and one such catastrophe or one such challenge could be an avian flu outbreak. Indeed. Well, how do you enforce the quarantine? Who would be best able to effect a quarantine? Very interesting questions indeed from the Commander-in-Chief, and unfortunately not rhetorical questions, questions that have been answered in various ways by various legislative moves on the political table, including the creation of something called the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act. And that mouthful was brought to you by the CDC, which uh, created a grant to uh, to give to the author of this this legislation. It's a legislation template that is passed individually by states in the United States, and so far has been passed by 33 states. And this uh, legislation is pretty worrying if you actually start to read it. It allows governors of states that pass this legislation to quarantine and or vaccinate entire populations with or without their consent, to overturn property rights, to use whatever facilities the government deems necessary in whatever way it deems necessary for the, the implementation of quarantines or um, delivering of medical aid or whatever they, de they de uh, deemed it to be necessary for, it also specifically allows the mobilization of quote-unquote organized militias to deal with the emergency, which includes the National State Guard, but includes all any, any other type of uh, state-recognized military assembly. And, of course, uh, it allows the governors to ration goods as they see fit during the duration of the crisis. So it is pretty worrying in terms of the suspension of civil liberties that it has embedded right into it, 
And as I say, this was created in 2001 in the wake of 9-11 during the anthrax scare. Um, It was revised in December of 2001. It's so far been passed by 33 states. The last time we saw a big push for this and the passage of this act was back in the 2009 swine flu scare. And uh, you can see more from episode 86 of this podcast about that and how it was used at that time to help pass it in even more legislatures around the country. So that's something to keep an eye on. Uh, Is your state uh, signed up to the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act? Has it passed that legislation in whatever form? And if not, is it thinking about doing so as a result of the Ebola scare? Something to keep in mind for this particular scare. But again, this all seems very theoretical. How about the actual implementation of medical martial law as a result of Ebola 2014? And that is, in fact, taking place in the affected countries in West Africa. Although you wouldn't know that from searching the term medical martial law or any combination of those terms in a Google search. This is pointed out in an excellent article by Truthstream News which I'll point you to as a good source on this uh, emergent Ebola scare, which points out that if you search medical martial law or any sort of combination of those types of terms, you won't find anything. But if you replace martial law with simply troops or soldiers, you start to see some very disturbing stories popping up through the news searches. One of which shows that last week, Liberia declared a 90-day state of emergency and the suspension of, quote-unquote, some civil liberties... Um, and that people in Liberia are very scared of what this means, as we can see by stories from the Associated Press uh, and other outlets that are reporting that, for example, relatives are now hiding uh, fe- uh, members of their family that have, uh, have developed a fever for fear of quarantine, for fear that the entire family will be scooped up and thrown into quarantine, and the healthy members of that family will be in quarantine with infected Ebola patients, thus much more likely to actually get the disease. We see other stories, similar stories along those lines, including families that just dump the uh, bodies of dead uh, family members in the street, because again, they don't want authorities knocking on their their door um, to quarantine them all. We've also seen Sierra Leone deploy an entire battalion of soldiers in order to enforce their own quarantine restrictions. And so far in the United States, we've seen the CDC, the Center for Disease Creation, I mean, Center for Disease Control, declaring a level one emergency, which is its highest level, uh, highest state of emergency and something it has not declared since that 2009 swine flu crisis, which, of course, killed far, far, far fewer people than the average uh, flu, but let's not worry about that. And the WHO has declared a public health emergency of international concern. This is an exceptionally important thing that I've seen really no one else picking up on in the alt media or reporting on, so let's talk about it. What is a public health emergency of international concern? This is a special state that can be declared by the World Health Organization under something called the International Health Regulations, which is an agreement that's been signed onto by 194 countries around the globe, which I think is just about every country on the planet. And all of those signatories to that agreement uh, allow the WHO, in the event of a public health emergency of international concern, a PHEIC, to gather and share data on the crisis or restrict travel anywhere in the world with or without governmental consent. The WHO can declare that travel into or out of any given country is uh, is not allowed under this uh, this agreement. 
Now, obviously, how is the WHO ever going to enforce something like that? The WHO doesn't have an army to, to do anything of that sort. So how would it happen? Well, disturbingly enough, I did find an article that was quoting Stephen Morris of CSIS. No, not the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, the other CSIS, whose uh, actual acronym escapes me at the moment, but is a globalist body, a think tank that's uh, populated by Zbigniew Brzezinski and the like of uh, those types of globalist fellow travelers, who um, have talked about uh, Stephen Morris as, I believe, their global health coordinator, and he's talked about how this could mean mobilizing NATO assets in order to help implement this PHEIC, and a direct quote from Stephen Morris, quote, the U.S. military knows how to operate in these environments, end quote, for the purpose of delivering aid and, and, and distributing um, uh, medical uh, supplies and, and helping ferry in workers and things, I'm sure. Only, only sunshine, rainbows, and lollipops. And oh, oh yeah, I mean, if they have to enforce a quarantine of an entire country, they could deploy NATO assets to do so. Pretty worrying stuff. And that, my friends, is what the, the real medical martial law will look like in the pandemic scenarios of a potential future pandemic. And again, I'm not saying that's Ebola 2014, but I'm saying that these are the types of things that are we are now being led into uh, and conditioned to believe are necessary and, uh, and just par for the course. And we're being introduced to these ideas right now. This is a preparatory phase that we are going through. And I think it's important that we understand what this potentially means and we, and we fight against these types of measures now when it, there is less at, uh, at stake on the table. Because... Rest assured, this will be used for the delivery of sunshine, rainbows, and lollipops the first, the first time or the first two times or the first ten times that it's used. But after that, after people get conditioned and used to it, then it can be used for restricting travel anywhere in the world. Oh, there's a pandemic in your country. Now people can't come in or out. Wouldn't that be convenient for, uh, as a geopolitical tool for anyone who's in positions of power? at the World Health Organization, and uh, I think we should be very, very wary of the people who are in positions to declare pandemics at the WHO. As we found out in that 2009 swine flu crisis, again, we talked about this on, on the Corbett Report at length at the time, but long story short, the European uh, Council and others found in their investigations after the fact, 100% the WHO declaration of pandemic during the swine flu crisis was motivated substantially so by the economic ties of the people on the board that the WHO set up to declare a pandemic. They had ties to the vaccine manufacturers that made billions of dollars um, on the wake of, in the wake of that crisis, in the wake of that scare through the swine flu uh, vaccines that were suddenly railroaded through and, and uh, put on the market in the wake of that scare. Does that sound familiar to anything that's happening right now? Well, it should, because of course... I have no doubt you've heard of ZMAP, ZMAP, ZMAP. Hey, have you heard of this new experimental Ebola virus treatment? It's called ZMAP. Did you get that? Once again, it's ZMAP by MAP Biopharmaceutical and uh, distributed by Leaf Biopharmaceutical out of San Diego. I'm sure you have heard about this numerous times over the past couple of weeks. I certainly have. And you may have heard, but probably not, about some of the other people who have been involved in the development of this Ebola, experimental Ebola treat treatment like Defiris and the U.S. government and certain interesting agencies there that we'll get into in a moment. Also, the Public Health Agency of Canada. Some interesting players involved in the uh, the background to the development of this, and we'll, as I say, we'll get more into that. But let's just take a look at the way that ZMAP, ZMAP, ZMAP has been seeded into the consciousness of the public 
over the past couple of weeks. So as you know, there is no cure for Ebola, no vaccine available for clinical use at this time. And normally patients are given fluids, blood transfusions and antibiotics with the hope their immune systems can fight off the virus. But with a case fatality rate of up to 90 percent and a death toll of nearly 900 from this latest outbreak stemming from West Africa, those measures are far from effective. Well, we may now have a breakthrough, a potential one at the very least, because at the request of the U.S. charity that worked with the to infected Americans, uh, Dr. Kent Brantley and aid worker Nancy Wrightbull, they were administered an experimental serum for Ebola and are both seeing remarkable improvement in their condition. So that's some encouraging news. The treatment called ZMAP, never tested on humans until now, is being developed by San Diego-based uh, MAP Biopharmaceutical. The drug is made uh, with tobacco plants from uh, and with an Ebola antibodies harvested from infected mice. Until now, MAP Biopharmaceutical Biopharmaceutical has been a little-known company with only nine employees, uh, a little more known now, Betty. What is this anti-serum? Well, it's, it's a, an antibody product. When your body is, is infected with any organism, you develop something called antibodies. These are immune factors that help destroy that particular germ. This product is derived from monkeys. So monkeys who were infected with Ebola, it's a product that was derived for them and then manufactured uh, outside of monkeys to, to create this antibody. Uh, what we understand is that the drug was given to both individuals, Nancy Wrightball and Dr. Brantley. Uh, it was given to them in Liberia. It was given to Dr. Brantley before he traveled at a time when supposedly he was, he was quite ill. And according to Samaritan's Purse, he responded dramatically. He responded quickly to that product. Uh, Nancy Wrightball received uh, one dose, did not respond that much, and received a second dose. And then uh, uh, from, from what we understand, there their condition has both improved. One doctor described their turnaround as taking the experimental medication as miraculous. The serum has not even been tested on humans yet, and medical experts say much more testing is needed. I do hope that it was as impressive as being described, because if it is, that bodes very well for that particular product. Truer words have never been spoken on MSM. Uh, yes, it does bode very well for that particular product, doesn't it? And this is like one coordinated advertising campaign for ZMAP, ZMAP, ZMAP. Did I tell you that name of that product again? That experimental Ebola treatment that's, uh, that hasn't even entered uh, human trials yet is ZMAP. Very interesting, the type of wall-to-wall -wall blanket coverage this has garnered, and uh, the very interesting connections this was uh, administered at the request of Samaritan's Purse, that organization that employed the two uh, aid workers. And uh, there's more about that connection and, and interesting things going on behind the scenes related to ZMAP. Um, let's take a look at what ZMAP is exactly. It's a cocktail of three monoclonal antibodies. Uh, basically, these antibodies have been derived from genetically engineered tobacco plants that, as I say, um, as I said earlier, have been engineered with the virus that, that has been extracted from monkeys and uh, it's been engineered into the plants, which then produce antibodies, which are harvested as um, part of the, the cocktail quote-unquote, of, uh, of antibodies that are involved in this treatment. Um, ZMAP was apparently identified as a drug candidate in January 2013 and has not entered clinical testing on humans yet, and the WHO 
lo and behold, now the WHO is putting a team of bioethicists together to examine and evaluate the guidelines for using experimental drugs in emergency situations, because now they're thinking about rewriting the entire rules and procedures for the implementation of new drugs on the back of this. That should be worrying for anyone on the planet. I don't care how how conspiratorial or lack unconspiratorial you are, the idea that now the I, the uh, the very rules and procedures for testing and experimenting and bringing drugs to market is being rewritten because you know in a, in the wake of an emergency you might need to do that suddenly that profit incentive the billions upon billions of dollars of potential profit incentive uh, does put the incentive there on the part of companies to foster, to allow, to even create and spread various panics in order to get their experimental drugs passed. And we'll have even more to say on the potential positive economic effects for various companies in the wake of this, what I'm calling the treatment scam aspect of this uh, Ebola scare. But just a quick look at Samaritan's Purse, which, as I say, uh, the the ZMAP was used at the request of Samaritan's Purse. How did Samaritan's Purse know about ZMAP? How did they research that? What kind of connections did they have to this MAP biopharmaceutical company, which had nine employees uh, just uh, a few months ago and now is uh, in charge of the, the world's most hottest uh, product, uh, from what the news coverage is telling us? Um, well, Samaritan's Purse also hired a, a plane um, to to fly those aid workers out, and someone did the the, the background on this, the research, and I'll, I'll link to that obviously in the show notes. That shows that the plane that they used, specifically being operated by Phoenix Air, is a suspected CIA rendition torture plane. That's right, uh, one of those planes that have been tracked around the world by various plane spotters at, who were making note of the various planes that the CIA was suspected of having used in their rendition and torture program back last decade, back when the CIA tortured and rendered people. I mean, <laughs> clearly that's not happening now. So that's an interesting little connection there as well. And here's some more interesting connections with the ZMAP. ZMAP is developed from two different types of uh, procedures. One is called MB003 that was developed by MAP Biopharmaceuticals with the aid of US AMRID, which people who don't know, that's basically the US biowarfare uh, wing of the Department of Defense. The same ones that brought to you the anthrax scare, by the way, uh, the anthrax uh, attack back in 2001, as we've talked about before on this uh, podcast. But also uh, the, the other component of this cocktail is ZMAB, Z-M-A-B, which was developed by uh, a company called Defiris uh, out of Canada, which had links to the Public Health Agency of Canada and uh, and some other uh, development partners. So there's some interesting governmental links to this ZMAP scam that's being foisted on the public right now. And there's another uh, treatment that you may have heard of um, at ad nauseum in the last few days. Uh, we talked about this briefly earlier. Techmira Pharmaceuticals has developed an RNA-based therapy under a $140 million Department of Defense contract. On July 4th, the FDA placed the human uh, trials of this uh, treatment on hold on, on full hold, meaning that there was no uh, possibility for them to proceed with any type of clinical testing on humans. That same day, their shares dropped 16% on, on one day, uh, the largest single-day decline in months. 
Yet, on August 8th, just a few days ago, the FDA allowed they went from full hold to partial hold on the clinical test, meaning that now Tecmira can at least go ahead with partial clinical testing and make some of this available, obviously, to people in the field there in West Africa for testing. And lo and behold, the same day, the stock price of Tecmira spiked 45%. And uh, this relates back to a an interesting little article uh, that's... That talks about that I tweeted out the other day that talks about how people are looking the investors are looking for the uh, the investment opportunity here in the Ebola outbreak but they haven't found one yet well that article was written shortly before this Techmira uh, announcement was made so I guess Techmira is the hot stock to buy if you're looking to profit from Ebola and who isn't, right? Well, so that's the treatment scam aspect of it. It's obviously, just like in the swine flu and the huge incentive to the vaccine manufacturers in the swine flu scare, there is a huge incentive to the biowarfare connected uh, companies that are working on Ebola treatments of various kinds. And again, there's more to say on the biowarfare aspect of this. So let's take a look at that. I mean, first of all, let's just take a look at the official story of Ebola and how it suddenly appeared in Congo in 1976 and Sudan in 1976. Uh, it was previously completely unknown. Its origins are still unknown. Again, they're guessing. They think the natural reservoir is fruit bats, but they don't know. Um, well, you know, are there any other mysterious biological agents that appeared on the scene around the time? Well, of course, there was the HIV AIDS, which was first identified by the C CDC in 1981. Its origins, of course, still unknown. And interestingly enough, I mean, let's just make this connection. Both Ebola and HIV operate in the same way. This comes from a Reuters article that was uh, posted on December 1st, 2001. It's up on the screen for those watching the video presentation, but it's probably too small to read, so I'll read it for you. Again, this comes from Reuters, December 1st, 2001. AIDS and Ebola found to use same mechanism to spread in body. Quote, the viruses that cause AIDS and Ebola, two deadly, contagious, and highly feared diseases, spread through the body using the same mechanism, U.S.-based researchers said on Friday. The researchers, led by Dr. Paul Binayas of the Aaron Diamond AIDS Research Center at New York's Rockefeller University, said they hoped their finding might lead to the discovery of new drugs to help treat HIV and Ebola infections. Their study, published in the December issue of the journal Nature Medicine, shows HIV and Ebola use a protein called TSG-101 to bud from the cells they infect. Both viruses hijack cells, inject their genetic material, and turn the cells into little virus factories. New copies of the virus bud from the cells in one of the steps of this process before going in search of new cells to infect. As both HIV and Ebola bud, TSG-101 attaches to the virus and helps it to emerge from the cell, the researchers reported. They said it might be possible to design a drug that interferes with this process. That would presumably prevent the spread of the virus in an infected person. It's remarkable to see two different viruses share a common budding mechanism, Benayas said in a statement. It is remarkable to see two completely different viruses that both spontaneously popped up in Africa in the late 1970s using the exact same mechanism never seen before or since in any other virus to spread throughout the human body, creating deadly um, epidemics, isn't it? And, uh, you know, that's fuel for the fire for the, uh, the talk that has long circulated about AIDS as a bioweapon and uh, a topic which is ripe for further investigation uh, in future editions of this podcast, I'm sure. But uh, let's 
take a look now at this specific instance of uh, biowarfare as, as it relates to the Ebola outbreak going on right now. This has been pointed out by uh, some researchers, including the uh, Bird Flu 666 blog, uh, which noted that Tulane University's re uh, researchers collaborated with U.S. AMRID back in 2007 on a project funded by the uh, National Institute of Health to the tune of $3.8 million to develop test kits for detection of hemorrhagic fever, uh, and the testing for that took place in Sierra Leone. And hemorrhagic fever, of course, like Ebola, of course, in this case, it was specifically directed at Lassa hemorrhagic fever, but again, very similar um, in terms of their effects. 2009, Tulane, again, Tulane University researchers, led a $7.1 million granted NIH project, National Institute of Health project, to continue that test kit development. And that has gone on, uh, presumably, in the years since. Uh, fast forward to 2014, and on July 23rd, Sierra Leone government announced that uh, Tulane University uh, would stop Ebola testing during the current Ebola outbreak. One more time, Tulane University to stop Ebola testing during the current Ebola outbreak. This relates back to a, a particular un, uh, hospital that uh, the Tulane University researchers were are at and which their, their grant funds from the NH, NIH are helping to, to fund, which is the main now Ebola testing and treatment for was the main testing and treatment facility in Sierra Leone during uh, the the onset and uh, and the uh, the early stages of this crisis uh, again Tulane University researchers were helping to fund the Kenema Kenema government hospital uh, there in Sierra Leone and uh, that was where their their testing that they were were working on was taking place a uh, testing for Ebola in this case now, interestingly enough, um, on August 7th, the National Institute for Health announced that they would not renew the Tulane University contract in November. Uh, it was due to expire in November of this year. NIH is not going to renew that contract for the, uh, the, the testing of the, these test kits for hemorrhagic fever. And uh, again, interestingly enough, the Sierra Leone government is uh, has announced that the Kenema government hospital will no longer be the the facility that is going to treat or accept new Ebola patients. They are now going to a separate research facility not connected with Tulane University. Tulane University researchers were connected in, uh, again, with U.S. AMRID and the U.S. Biological Warfare Program under the rubric of bioterrorism, which was touted in the Tulane University uh, press documents that were given out at the time of these the announcement of these NIH grants. So... Again, we have these bio-warfare, bio-terror-connected researchers there at the heart of the outbreak in Sierra Leone, and the Sierra Leone government apparently trying to basically kick them out or, or stop them from doing their work. And the NIH is now dusting their hands of the whole thing. Very interesting, and I think there's going to be more to come out on that, so we'll have to continue to follow that particular thread. Speaking of uh, threads and um, some of the information that we can look at... Um, uh, with regards to this biowarfare aspect, well, let's take a look at the comment thread in that Ebola uh, uh, pandemic, uh, panic or pandemic uh, open source investigation on corporatereport.com. Uh, one of the commenters there, Anna Bricks Thompson, who's contributed quite a bit to the MH17 open source investigation we have uh, going on as well. She writes, a possible connection I find interesting is how the British TV series Utopia centers its stories or story around depopulation through creating a virus a quote-unquote Russian flu uh, 
that is supposed to kill thousands of people, a group led by an MI5 agent called Milner, a reference to Milner of the Milner Group, the Rhodes uh, Trust, the, the, the secret society that Carol Quigley identified in the Anglo-American establishment in Tragedy and Hope, interesting, wants to prompt the rest of the Earth's population to take a sterilizing vaccine targeted to leave only a small elite race able to bear children. That is pretty much every part of the propaganda that I see as part of the long-term conditioning process going on here. Not only is it Russian flu obviously playing into the current uh, Cold War mentality, but uh, the, the idea that this is... Uh, a sterilizing vaccine that uh, that is forced on the population to weed out the, the, the population and leave only the elite uh, able to bear children. Again, I mean, so much of that is really what we are looking at long term in terms of this end game of depopulation scenarios. And again, just on the note of Russia and the Russia Russian aspect of this and the, the new Cold War and the demonization of, of Russia in the, the popular press... We see uh, Joan Redmond noting on in this comment thread, Back on the 5th of May 2004, a Russian scientist, Antonina Presnyakova, died after striking, uh, sticking herself with a needle containing deadly Ebola. Gary Bell, on his radio show, A View from Space on Toronto AM640, stated that she was splicing Ebola with the Marburg virus when the accident happened, and she documented her illness as she was dying. Uh, Joan Redmond writes, I have not found where he got his information from. However, one of the original ports, uh, reports on the MoscowTimes.com does mention the Marburg virus at the end of the article. It's now only available on archive.org. Wikipedia refers to this laboratory, the Vector State Research Center of Virology and Biotechnology outside of Novosibirsk, as a facility that has, at least in Soviet times, been a nexus for biological warfare research and Judith Miller of the New York Times also refers to it as a former weapons lab. Again, um, this is the type of story that I imagine would be jumped all over if and when they decide to go with a Russian flu-type scenario. Oh, look, it's the Russians and their bio-warfare. They, they were the ones who were engineering this all along. Um, that's something to at least keep in mind uh, as a card that they might have up their sleeve for if and when they do want to go along that route and start uh, revealing the agenda, but of course blaming it on Russia rather than on U.S. AMRID and the, the other types of bio-warfare research institutes on the U.S. side of things. But I guess that brings us to the question of, again, why is this important? What does this really mean? Where is this really going? As I said earlier, that description of that British series Utopia, which I haven't seen, so I, I can't attest to it myself, but that description sounds very much like what I think the ultimate endgame depopulation scenario really is. And that's what I think all of this is really leading us to. It's leading us towards the conditioning of the acceptance of this idea of pandemic threat and the suspension of civil liberties, the eventually, eventually the, the large-scale releases, oh, we're all going to die because of these, these viruses that continue to, uh, to spread. And uh, we've seen, again, so much conditioning for that coming out through Hollywood and the propaganda machinery in recent years, including uh, a 2011, I believe, do uh, movie called Contagion, which features interestingly in this story. Let's go to this happy character. If you're looking at the video of this, you can see the uh, the smug face of Dr. Charles Arntzen of Arizona State University, who 
quote-unquote, pioneered the process of producing antigenic proteins from genetically modified plants, i.e. the very process that is used in the creation of ZMAP, ZMAP, ZMAP. Did I mention ZMAP? So they, the ZMAP, uh, MAP Biopharmaceuticals, used this process pioneered by Dr. Arnson at Arizona State University to, uh, to get their antibodies from tobacco plants. A uh, direct quote from Dr. Arnson, quote, I was involved in the initial research funded by the U.S. Army, which gave a grant to ASU, and the idea was we would use plant biotechnology to make both a vaccine and the mon- monoclo- uh, monoclonal antibody. So, again, it's direct U.S. Army involvement in the creation of this technology, which is then used in the creation of ZMAP, ZMAP, ZMAP. So, Dr. Charles Arntzen, one of the people pioneering this technology, and what does he have to say about the idea of depopulation? Well, let's take this again from Truthstream Media, which, as I say, is doing excellent work on this issue, and an excellent video they put together highlighting some very disturbing comments that Dr. Arntzen made at a 2012 summit on the problem of the 8 billion people that are soon to be on this planet. This is Dr. Charles Arnson of Arizona State University. He's the guy who's behind growing vaccines and tobacco plants for DARPA. He's also the guy behind the experimental treatment that was given to the Ebola-infected Americans they flew in. And he's also this guy that we reported on back in July 2013, joking about culling large swaths of the population with a genetically engineered virus. And he's one of these elite scientists in the cutting edge of bioengineering who are using it to develop things like edible vaccines. He was going to create a banana vaccine to give to the third world. He had a bunch of Rockefeller Foundation funding and so forth that would have medicine grown into the plant or the fruit. And you can use basically any medicine. And speaking of growing things into plants, he's also worked with Dr. Mitch Hine of Epicyte. Not sure if you guys remember Epicyte, but they were really popular back in the early 2000s because they were growing pharmacorn, genetically engineered corn, with anti-sperm antibodies in it. And of course, he's also worked for DARPA. One of the things he did is work on stockpiling an anthrax vaccine or an anthrax treatment for the military. But his words at this lecture here, are just sick. It's incredible what he said. Listen to his response about should we feed the world when there's 8 billion people. Considering the negative social and environmental impacts of human population growth, shouldn't we try to restrict food supply and return our population to a more sustainable level? On that same, on that same note, should there be 8 billion people in this world? Is there a limit on and the number of people our planet can sustain? How do we go about this politely? Should we invade Mars? Uh, he wants to go to the moon, uh, so don't forget that. And uh, should we concern ourselves with feeding 8 plus billion in the first place, or should we allow natural forces of carrying capacity to affect or limit population growth, placing our emotions aside, says that question. So, thoughts on this? Has anybody seen Contagion? (laughs) That's the answer. Go out and use genetic engineering to create a better virus. I mean, 45% of the world population is supposed to go in Contagion? Science doesn't tell us with the... The <laughs> oh, it's just so funny to talk about a quarter of the world's population dying of horrible diseases, isn't it? Oh, 
Yes, for those of you who didn't catch that audio, he was talking about Contagion, the Hollywood movie, um, and the idea that a genetically engineered virus could wipe out 25% of the world's population. And this is coming from a guy who genetically engineers viruses. Oh, isn't that awesome to hear that? Um, Of course it is not. Of course it is deeply worrying, but not surprising, unfortunately, to anyone who knows the depopulation agenda that is the ultimate long-term endgame. And I think probably the most effective way of implementing that endgame would be through some type of engineered virus. And I think that is part, uh, that is at the very least a card that is in the deck. And I really do think that we should be, uh, we should understand that and we should understand that these types of Ebola outbreaks and the like, which again, I don't believe at, at least at this point, Ebola 2014 is not going to be the implementation of this, but it is another data point in the conditioning of the public to expect these types of pandemic viruses to to ultimately start wiping out large segments of the population. And who knows, one day it might be just released on whatever shadowy boogeyman terrorist group they decide to invent that uh, may or may not even exist, that is supposedly releasing these bioterror, uh, bio-war, bioweapons, and who knows where from or how they did it, but oh, you know, they're taking out greater and greater swaths of the globe as they do so, and we have to be hemmed into tighter and tighter and more controlled cities as a result, and oh, civil liberties, what's that? That's only for people who, who aren't in emergencies, etc., etc. So again, I think this is extremely important to understand. If you don't know about the depopulation agenda, I would suggest you go to CorbettReport.com and just type the word depopulation into the search bar. We've done a lot of work on this in the past, talking about some of the statements that have been made by Prince Philip and uh, and all sorts of people, Ted Turner and Bill Gates and others who have lusted after this idea of depopulating vast swaths of the world. And let's not use the euphemism. That means, in this case, killing off vast swaths of the globe. Um, it's one thing to talk about just sort of breeding ourselves out of, out of existence, you know, just having less children or something. It's another thing to talk about engineering corn to contain anti-spermal antibodies that, uh, that basically make men sterile and then feeding it to third world populations, as is done, as as was talked about in that video by Epicite and, and others. So again, we have to be aware of this agenda and what's going on. And in this regard, probably one of the most interesting in this particular regard when talking about Ebola was the statement made back, I believe, in 2006 by Dr. Eric Pianca, Pianca of University of Texas, in which eyewitnesses claim that in his uh, one of his speeches, I believe a speech in acceptance of some sort of award that he was winning for his research, his biomedical research, he talked about uh, the the ultimate need to reduce the population and how wonderful it would be if and when you know the Ebola virus uh, starts to wipe out 90% of the globe. A statement which received standing ovation, again according to eyewitnesses who were actually there at the speech. So. Uh, again, there's a long history towards this endgame, and uh, it's something that, I th- again, I think we have to be aware of in order to more effectively counteract, because just like the false flag scenario, we break that tool when we show it for what it is, and when we, we show it, when we run out in front of that and uh, show the audience that, uh, that that there's a rabbit up their sleeve. So uh, let's work on bringing more information to this subject, but on that note, I think we should clarify a couple of things that I've seen in the alternative media that I think need clarifying, or um, more accurately debunking, because they have uh, garnered quite a bit more attention than I think they should. 
One of which is this idea that Obama has signed an executive order um, to allow detention of well persons, even uh, specifically in the wake of this Ebola outbreak. This relates, in fact, to a uh, an executive order that was originally penned by uh, George Bush a decade ago. And that order was signed in the wake of the SARS uh, hype and specifically mentioned uh, the severe acute respiratory syndrome in that executive order. What Obama did in this executive order uh, amendment that he just signed is basically take out severe acute and just left it as respiratory syndrome, syndrome, i.e. any type of respiratory syndrome. Now, the implication supposedly in the headlines that are being generated in the alt media is that this has to do with the Ebola virus. It does not. The original executive order, when you go back and read George Bush's executive order, specifically mentioned Ebola. It said hemorrhagic fevers, including Lassa, Marburg, Ebola, Crimean Congo, South American, and others not yet isolated or named. So that was specifically included as one of these diseases which could be used to implement a detention or seizure of people and quarantine, etc. And uh, so that was already on the books. Obama didn't touch that that had nothing to do with Ebola, what Obama did. What Obama did was expand it, really, for the inclusion of such things as Middle Eastern rep- Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, which has gone under the radar in the wake of this Ebola hype, but is still out there and still potentially going to be the next big panic that they want to worry us about. So uh, this new executive order amendment doesn't have anything to do with Ebola specifically, but it is uh, something to uh, keep in mind about uh, medical martial law in general. Another thing that I would like to uh, to uh, debunk is something of a red herring. There's been a lot of uh, press in the alt media about the CDC has patented Ebola, and that seems to be about the extent of the uh, the research that most people put into this claim. Um, well, I don't think that that's exactly what's happening. Um, let's put this on the record. The uh, uh, the patent is CA two seven four one five two three A one. Human Ebola virus species and consumptions and uh, compositions and methods thereof. And people are saying this is a patent of the Ebola virus. Well, not exactly. It's a patent of a specific uh, strain that has been engineered, uh, specifically from reading from the uh, the description of the uh, the patent. Compositions are provided that are operable as immunogens to elicit and Im- uh, an and immune response and immune response or protection from Ebobun challenge in a subject such as a primate. Inventive methods are directed to detention and treatment of Ebobun infection. Um, basically, this is a long way of going uh, to say that uh, that what they're talking about is a very specific uh, strain of Ebola called Ebobun uh, for short. It's uh, Bungiona or something. <laughs> I'll have to I'll have to look that up. Of course, I'll put the link in the uh, in the show notes. Um, it's very specifically talking about the the uh, immune response and treatment of this. And a lot of people are saying, oh, look, this means that CDC has engineered Ebola or something of that sort. Well, a couple of things to keep in mind. First of all, the current strain spreading in the Congo is not the Ebobun strain of Ebola virus. It is uh, re- related to the Zaire strain, 97% relation. And uh, for people who are really interested, I'm going to put in a very technical link to PL- plos1.org in the uh, in the show notes uh, to a very technical study for the microbiologists in the crowd. Clock rooting further uh, further demonstrates that Guinea 2014 EBOV is a member of the Zaire lineage, which talks in great detail about how this uh, is not uh, the the bung. Bundi Bugio uh, strain of the virus. This is related to Zaire um, 
uh, Zaire uh, Ebola virus. So it is not the same strain as is talked about in the patent. So in that respect, this has nothing to do with that CDC patent. Another thing to keep in mind is that this is not the first or only um, virus that CDC has patented. In fact, this is... I don't want to say a common practice, but it is something that C- CDC has done before and will likely do again in uh, in the discovery of, of new strains of various viruses. For example of that, we can turn to a 2003 par- article from uh, the Associated Press, Scientists Race to Patent SARS Virus, Efforts to Claim Property Rights Spark Ethical Debate. Quote, researchers around the world are racing to patent the SARS virus and its genetic material, rekindling criticism of laws that allow people to claim intellectual property rights on living things. Uh, Several biotech and pharmaceutical companies, the U.S. government, and researchers in Canada and Hong Kong have filed SARS-related patent applications in recent weeks, claiming ownership of everything from bits of genetic material to the virus itself. Nonprofit and government agencies said their applications are intended to keep the SARS work in the public domain, while private companies said patents will protect their research and development and possibly lead to drug royalties. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, for instance, claims ownership of the virus and its entire genetic content. Rather than trying to profit from it, uh, profit if such a patent were awarded, the CDC says its application is to prevent others from monopolizing the field. The whole purpose of the patent is to prevent folks from controlling the technology, said CDC spokesman Llewellyn Grant. This is being done uh, to give the industry and other researchers reasonable access to the samples, end quote. So there is the official story about why the CDC patents uh, patents viruses. If they didn't do it, there would be um, uh, c- companies that would do it. And the CDC says, well, we make it part of the public domain. We let researchers uh, study it. If a private company came along and patented Ebobun, for example, that would mean that if you actually did contract that particular strain of Ebola virus, you would have to go to or even if you wanted to look at potential uh, cures for that strain of Ebola virus, you would have to grant, uh, be granted a license by the patent holder. So, uh, at least on the surface level, it makes sense why the CDC does that. Uh, you know, their official story is that they're putting it out in the, in the public domain. You can ascribe ulterior motives to them, um, but again, the proof is in the pudding. When and if the CDC restricts access based on their patent and starts uh, charging people, for example, for the right to uh, to uh, examine a virus, um, then we will be able to say, look, aha, they're doing this because of that. Um, as far as I know, that has never happened, and no one has ever complained about that. So at this point, the CDC patent on Ebobun is a double red herring. A, it has nothing to do with the 2014 strain, and B, it is uh, it is not being used to, to prohibit people from, from looking at that strain, at least as far as anyone has reported. Again, I'm willing to be corrected on that point, but, uh, but I think at this point, the CDC patent is a red herring. It does not mean that the CDC created or owns uh, the Ebola virus, although... As I say, I'm certainly open to the possibility that Ebola virus is a bioweapon that was created, but this is not proof of that. So let's not spread that uh, that information as if it was proof of anything. All right, that's going to end our our examination today again a ton of information so there are a ton of links in the show notes that you can explore at your leisure and of course you can explore the open source investigation that we're doing at corporatereport.com the thread with dozens and dozens and dozens of comments there with uh, research and links all sorts of information as i say don't panic 
if you are in any country other than Liberia, Nigeria, uh, Sierra Leone, uh, or Guinea, and even then, uh, you probably should not be panicking and, uh, and soiling yourself over the possibility of contracting Ebola, at the very least until we start seeing transmission in other countries. And, uh, and also, we should remain skeptical of, of every single thing that, uh, that is being promoted in the, main, in the mainstream, in the alternative media, things that you've heard today. Again, be skeptical. Uh, search for this information. Look for it yourself. But I think ultimately this is about the preparation for potential future pandemics and the preparation of the public consciousness to accept those. All right, as I say, that's going to do it for today. If you want to contribute to this ongoing investigation, of course, you can sign up for a Corbett Report membership. And I'd also like to, of course, thank everyone who has contributed to purchase a copy of the Century of Enslavement DVD. For all of you who have been patiently waiting for the past month or so for your order, they are being fulfilled this week. You will receive an email when it gets sent out to you. Um, It should take two weeks from that point. My apologies on the delay in getting these orders out, but unfortunately my computer problem put my DVD production well behind schedule, so I'm just getting back on track with that. Once again, thank you to all of you out there who make this investigation possible. If you like this uh, this investigation, if you think it's important, if you think there's information in here that people should know about, please spread it to others. That is how this work propagates. It is the open, open source, free and open media that is the counterbalance to the MSM feeding us all of their lies. So that's going to do it for this week. Once again, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Thanking you so much for joining me and looking forward to talking to you again next week.